Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, if you will. Matthew chapter 28, that's the very end of the first Gospel. Gospel of Matthew, written, of course, by Matthew, one of the twelve disciples. As you're looking for Matthew chapter 28, I just want to note to you that I personally have never known the Holy Spirit to grow a Christian who has alienated himself, alienated herself from the people of God, the church. Uh, God works in your life through the church of Jesus Christ. When God's people make themselves available, what you'll notice is that God strengthens, that God calls, and that God directs your life when you make yourself available to Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you'll discover that you will want to worship God more, more, and more. The more you know of God, the more you want to worship God. That's how it works. So you can measure how much you know God by how much you're willing to worship Him. All right? Keep that in mind as we move on. Now, having said that, take a look at what happened to the disciples when, when they made themselves available to Jesus Christ. At the very end of Matthew chapter 28, this is a very famous passage. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We know that to be what? Of course, that is the Great Commission. Now the Bible doesn't call it this portion, the Great Commission, we have dubbed it the Great Commission because it is a commission and it is great. Thus, it's the Great Commission. But there's an amazing verse just before that, a portion that is so overlooked when we read this text. Let me read to you beginning at verse 16 and you'll see what I'm talking about. Look at 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And look, when they saw them, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. And then comes the Great Commission. What I want to do this morning is place emphasis on that little phrase, but some doubted. Some doubt it. The resurrection is often challenged by unbelievers. What I want you to see is that what happens today in terms of people not believing the resurrection is nothing new. Even back in the time when Jesus Christ resurrected, many people questioned and doubted it. Uh, however, what you'll notice is that Christ appeared many times to his followers. The Bible records several of those. Christ appeared to his disciples. Now, who are his disciples? There are times in which the word disciple refers to a very specific group of 12 men. 
the 12 disciples. And for our sake, what we often do is we capitalize the D in disciples referring to the 12. But you'll notice here that the scriptures do not do that. Sometimes um, it refers to the 11 because Judas Iscariot is no longer among the 12 because he has passed on by his own hands. And so they're referred to as the 11. Sometimes the disciples are referred to as the 12, even though there's only 11 at this point. But they were dubbed the 12. The 12 hand-picked followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. Other times the word disciple refers to a multitude of people, many people who would come to listen to Christ and to some degree would follow Christ as he preached in different cities and different regions. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, we see that sometimes these disciples were not faithful at all, and yet they're dubbed disciples. Why? Because for a time, for a short time, they followed Jesus Christ. If you look at John chapter 6, verse 66, John 6, 66, after Jesus Christ had given a rather particularly difficult teaching, many people said, oh, 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 this is not for me. I don't get this. I don't like this. I'm not going to listen to any more of this. And they began to leave. In fact, verse 66 reads this way. After this, many of his dis- disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, with Christ. To which Jesus Christ then looked at his 12 disciples and said, what about you? Are you going to leave too? To which Peter, as a spokesman for the 12, says, where would we go? You have the words of life. Other times, the Bible uses the word disciple to refer to those faithful people who did pursue after Christ. People who came to Christ before the cross and then those people who came to a saving knowledge of Christ after the cross. Remember all the miracles that occurred? They were rather convincing that this was the Christ. And some people placed their faith in Christ after that. And now they are the disciples of Christ. And now they are following after Christ. So there were various times in which Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, showed himself to his followers. You'll recall that he showed himself to the women at the tomb. The women who went to the tomb to embalm his body, only to discover that he was no longer there. And then there were the uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encountered the resurrected Christ. You'll recall the uh, twelve, or actually it was the ten disciples who were in a room in Jerusalem who encountered the resurrected Christ. Why do I say ten? Because Judas Iscariot was no longer there. But there was also somebody missing. Do you remember who? Thomas. Thomas. Didymus. Thomas Didymus, which means twin. He had a twin brother. He wasn't there. But Christ showed himself to the ten. A week later... After Thomas had said, I won't believe unless I touch his wound and I see with my own eyes. Well, a week later, Christ appears to the eleven. And he does not touch the wound, but he does see the Christ. And he, too, believes in the resurrected Christ. You'll notice that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, 
there is one sighting, one appearance of Jesus Christ. I shouldn't use the word sighting. Scratch that. There is one appearance of Jesus Christ to a multitude of over 500 people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Now, 500 plus people, that's a lot of eyewitnesses. Would you agree? People who said, I have seen, along with you, we're standing there together, have seen the resurrected Christ. That gives substantial testimony to the reality of the resurrection. 500 witnesses. It's a lot of people. And now we come to Matthew chapter 28. At verse 16, it says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They're still in Jerusalem. And now they're going to make their way up north to Galilee. So the disciples have now at this point, after the death and resurrection of Christ, they have regrouped. You'll recall that they go north, they're fishing, John chapter 21, Jesus Christ reveals himself to them there. But now they're regrouping and they're going to do exactly what Jesus Christ had instructed them to do earlier. They're going to go back to Galilee, which is where all 11 were from. There was only one disciple who was probably not from Galilee, the northern region. Galilee was the blue-collar region of Israel. Judas Iscariot, we believe, by virtue of his name, was from the southern end, south of Jerusalem. He's no longer among them. These disciples go back home to a region called Galilee, sometimes referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, because in that region were many people who were not Jews, many people who did not share their faith, people who were from other ethnicities, other parts of the world. In fact, that's why at one point there's all these pigs being herded in Galilee. And you'll recall what happened, Jesus Christ casts out demons from one man, those demons enter into what? Pigs. What were pigs doing in Israel? They were not supposed to be eating pigs. Well, it's because there were a lot of Gentiles in that region. And those pigs run down the hill into the water and they drown, to which some people say, hey, that's not fair. That was a man's flock. Are you going to tell God what's fair and what's not? Some people dare. And so here they are now going back to Galilee or Galilee of the Gentiles. And it would take about a week to go back north, back home. Of course, they're walking. Uh, For us, by car, it would have not taken uh, very long at all. But if you're venturing in several miles a day, it would take approximately seven days to get there. And they go to a mountain in which they had been previously instructed by Christ to go to. Now, if you go back to chapter 26 and verse 32, you see there in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus Christ, right after the the Last Supper, he takes his men, his disciples, to Mount Olivet, and there he is speaking to them. There he is praying with them. Some of them are falling asleep. This is just prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells them that this is where they were supposed to meet. They were supposed to meet on this particular mountain. He does not tell us which, but he told them where they are to meet afterwards. This same place is mentioned by the angels at the empty tomb. If you look at chapter 28 and verse 7. There, they're once again reminded, these women are reminded that this is where you're supposed to meet. The disciples are to go. 
And then if you move down to verse 10, you see once again, the resurrected Christ says, tell them to go where I have instructed them to go, to the mountain Galilee. And now when we come to chapter 28, verse 16, it says the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. I want you to notice something very important here in our understanding of the the occurrence of doubt in the Christian life. These men made themselves available to Jesus Christ. They made themselves available to God. How? Well, they went where God instructed them to go. They went where they could see Christ. Now keep in mind that the reason why they did not see Jesus Christ at the empty tomb is because they did not go there. Had they gotten up and gone to the tomb, they too would have seen the Christ. But they didn't. And so when these women came back and reported, we've seen the Christ, they didn't believe it. Had they gone, they would have. Well, here they are wiser, and they make themselves available. Now, it appears to me that what we see here happening at verse 16, and particularly 17, is the same thing we see in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus Christ appears to the 500 plus people. This is the historical teaching of the Christian church. However, I must admit the Bible is not absolutely clear. But it sure does seem that this is the case. This would be about 25, maybe 35 days after the resurrection. So this is just a few days before the ascension. They're going back to their home region in Galilee. And remember, this is where Jesus Christ says, go to all nations. And it would be very appropriate for them to go back to Galilee of the Gentiles to hear those words, go to all nations. All nations were right there and then just beyond. And of course, because it was Galilee, it would be much easier, less threat, less jeopardy for 500 plus people to gather together to worship and follow after Christ than it would be in Jerusalem or in the Judean region. Certainly there would be less opposition in Galilee. And this is where the Great Commission is given. When Jesus Christ meets with his disciples, and again, by disciples, I believe it's referring to the great multitude of people that are following Christ now in Galilee. Here are two rules regarding faith for you to keep in mind as we progress here this morning. Two rules regarding faith. The first one is this. If you want to strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ, you must seek out Christ. You must seek him out. If you want to strengthen your faith, you must look for Christ. You must pursue him. Here's lesson number two regarding faith. If you want your faith to increase, you must make yourself available to Christ. Your faith will not increase if you do not make yourself available. So they traveled north to Galilee, and there they found that Christ was indeed speaking the truth. He did meet them there, just as he said he would. 
They made themselves available, they sought him out, and they discovered the reality of Jesus Christ. And so we come to verse 17, and you'll notice that the first half of verse 17 says this, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw the resurrected Christ, they worshipped him. The twelve, yes, or rather the eleven, if you will, and the multitudes. Look at how they were affected by the appearance of Jesus Christ. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They gave honor to him. And that honor was expressed outwardly with adoration. They saw Christ and they worshipped him. You know, I often wonder, how would the modern church react if they were to see the resurrected Christ? Christianity tends to go in two different extremes. You have those who see Christ everywhere in the bark of a tree or on a grilled cheese. I'm not kidding. And these folks will then venerate that piece of grilled cheese as being an epiphany. And they'll treasure it. But the reality is, is that they're actually trivializing Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing. They're trivializing Jesus Christ by seeing him in grilled cheese and other places. And then you have the other end of the polar extreme. And that would be people more so like us. Who would see Christ and, oh, definitely we would be respectful. Oh, absolutely. We would be respectful. We would be quietly amazed. We would be a little leery. No question about it. We would probably not be very expressive. We would certainly not be overly expressive. What would we do if we saw the resurrected Christ? Now, before I go any further, let me see, say, say something. We do not need to see the resurrected Christ. Not on grilled trees, not on a barking tree, not standing behind me in a pulpit. Anywhere. Why? Because Christ has revealed himself here. The word of God is God's self-disclosure. This is the revelation of Christ to us today. So we do not need to see an epiphany. We do not need to see with our own eyes a resurrected Christ. And in fact, if you look at Luke chapter 16, even if you did, it would not add to your faith if the word of God is not enough. Luke 16. But I still wonder, how would we react if we saw the resurrected Christ? If we were standing there and saw the resurrected Christ, I think some of us, many of us would say, thanks for that solid, Jesus. That was really good. And we would walk away. Thank you. I can't believe you did that for me. I owe you one. We would not be overly expressive. We would not be overly joyed. We would not be overly grateful. Notice what these people do here. They worship Jesus Christ. You'll recall what we see at the empty tomb when uh, the women at the tomb saw Christ. Look at chapter 28, verse 9. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Would you do that? Would you do that? That word there, worship, in the original language means that they would, that you prostrate yourself. You fall on your knees and you adore. Would you do that? 
Or would you just say, thanks, that really meant a lot to me. Now these women loved Christ. And they worshipped Christ. Because they understood who they were and what Christ did for them. It wasn't because they touched his hand. It wasn't because they ate with him. It was because they understood who they were and they understood who Christ is and what he did for them. And if you understand who you were and what Christ has done for you because of who he is, you too can learn to want to clasp his feet and worship him. Our love for Christ, my friends, must increase even as we, our love for ourselves, decreases. Matthew Henry was a commentator a long time ago, a couple hundred years ago. Does a wonderful job commentating on the scriptures. I love reading from Matthew Henry. And he notes this, he says, All that see the Lord Jesus with an eye of faith are obliged to worship him. Anyone and everyone who sees Jesus Christ is obligated, because of who he is, to worship him. And that's what these folks did. Because worship is the natural result of faith and love. If you love Christ and you have faith in Christ, you're going to want to worship Christ. So here's a lesson for us. Your desire to worship Christ is a reflection of how much you love him, how much you believe in him. If your desire to worship him is great, it is an indication that you truly love him and that you truly believe in him. But it works the other way around as well. If your desire to worship him is minimal, is small, shrinking, not very big, then it's because your love and your faith are shrinking. Minimal, it's not growing very big. It's a good way to measure our devotion, our faith, our love of Christ. Well, in the midst of all those who believed, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, There, look at verse 17 again, that last phrase. In the midst of all those who believed, there were those who doubted. It does seem like an innocent comment, but some doubted. But really, it's extremely significant. Some doubted. Now, this is not the first time that Christ is doubted. Uh, the disciples, again, when the uh, three women came, there was Mary, Mary, and Joanna. They came, they ran back to the disciples and said, He's gone and He's resurrected. The tomb is empty and He's resurrected. What was the response in Luke chapter 24 of the disciples? They didn't believe it. They were rather vehemently noted that they didn't believe. Again, Thomas doubted that. Christ had resurrected until he saw him in John chapter 20. But recall to Peter. Peter doubted Christ. You'll recall when the disciples saw Jesus Christ walking across the water. They thought it was a ghost. You would too. I know I would. And when they realized that it was Jesus Christ, miraculously, obviously, walking in water. You know, today, if you go out to that part of the world, you can walk on water. What they've done is they put a sheet of glass, a glass bridge just under the surface of water. And now people go and they walk out into the Sea of Galilee. How silly. 
trivializing Christ. But people love it. Make a little money. It must be pretty, but it's still a trivializing of the person in the work of Christ. Well, Peter doubted, even though he had enough faith to step out of the boat and walk with Christ a few steps. But the scriptures tell us in Matthew 14 that when Peter took his eyes off of Christ, what happened? He began to sink. And Jesus Christ said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, what I find amazing is that as Jesus Christ was saying those words, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He already had his hand extended to rescue Peter. Keep that in mind. He was already rescuing Peter as he said those words. The word there for doubt is the word for hesitate. Oh, you of little faith, why did you hesitate? And it's the same word we see here in Matthew 28, 17. But some doubted. Some hesitated. That is to say that as these masses of people came together to see the resurrected Christ, many worshipped, but some doubted. Meaning that there was a reluctance to believe, on a part of some, a reluctance to believe in the resurrected Christ. Now, it would not have been hard for the 11 disciples to believe. At this point, they had encountered the resurrected Christ a few times already. But you can imagine all the others who were there from Galilee and elsewhere, how difficult it would have been for them to believe that this was indeed the resurrected Christ. To fall on their knees and worship. Not because they didn't value Christ, but because they didn't believe that was the Christ. And so some hesitated, some doubted. Let me suggest to you that worship does tend to quiet our doubt. When you discover, as you worship the Lord, the more you worship, the less you doubt. However, it is very hard to worship the one you doubt. And so we find ourselves in in a rather complex situation. But let me suggest to you that you learn to worship based on what faith you already have. And allow your worship to help you bolster the faith, even if it is just small faith. You do not want to worship God without faith. Many people do that. Uh, Downstairs we were just talking about the invention of the mainline churches. Churches that have cast off the word of God but want all the benefits of God. We compared it to a a corn still in a husk. The, The kernels are the benefits of Christianity. The husk is the doctrine of Christianity. And many people want the kernels but they don't want the husk. And so people come to worship God, but they're not worshiping God because they don't know God. What are they doing then? They are simply placating themselves with positive thinking. They are um, practicing contemplative yearning. 
we will contemplate and we will yearn for something we don't believe is actually there. It's dangerous. I remember as a teenager, a friend of mine lived in an apartment building, and for some reason they never used the front, the front door. And so in order to get into his apartment, I would have to go down this long and dark and narrow alley. No matter what time it was, it was dark, and it was not a nice neighborhood. And every time I set to go down that alley, and it was often, I would pause and think, I wonder what I'm going to encounter on the other end. And I would have to convince myself that this time I'm going to be safe. And you know, every time I was, except for that one time in which there was a Doberman pincher at the other end of that dark alley. And when his eyes caught mine, we both ran. And you should see how fast that dog could run. Well, you would be surprised to see how fast these short legs ran. <laughs> you see, I had convinced myself that it's safe when I really didn't know. What I'm suggesting to you is that you do not worship God hoping that this is true, but rather worship God based on what you know to be true, even if your faith is still small. Keep in mind why the disciples are here. How did they come to this point? Well, first of all, they're there at this mountain in Galilee because Christ instructed them to go. And they are there because they wanted to make themselves available to Christ. But notice, too, that they believed enough to take that trek to the mountain in Galilee. In other words, they had some degree of faith already. And they followed what they had. They were moved by the faith they had to go and worship the Lord. But when they were faced with the presence of the resurrected Christ, when they saw Christ there in front of them with their own two eyes, some of them doubted. Now we can place emphasis on that it's they doubted or on some of them doubted. It was just some. I'm placing emphasis on the fact that they doubted. It doesn't matter who or how many. The point being here, that there seems to be a persistent root of doubt in the life, in the hearts of many Christians. A persistent root of doubt that just keeps growing. And you yank it out, but it just keeps growing in the heart of the Christian. A doubt that makes you ask yourself, well, what if? What if this is not true after all? What if I duped myself into believing this stuff about Jesus Christ? What if I really wanted to believe it and so I made it true for me? What if he's lying to me? What if the Bible is not the word of God? What if I just want this to be true and so I force myself to believe that I'm a sinner and that Christ is changing my life? What if Jesus Christ did not die for my sins? What if Jesus Christ is not God? That constant root that makes you wonder, is it, is it true? You wonder whether or not 
Christ can really be trusted. Well, let me quote to you again from Matthew Henry. He says, The faith of those that are sincere might still be very weak and wavering. You may very well have sincere faith, but your faith is still weak. And your faith is wavering. Uh, your, your faith is like trying to balance something on a scale. Have you ever tried to do that? You have a, a, a plate on either end, and you're trying to figure out, is, is it balanced? So you put a little more, and, and well, on one side, and it tips the other way. And, and you take a little something out, and it tips the other way. And you find it so hard to just balance it. And that's where you are with your faith. What do I need to do? What do I need to believe? Where is the central point? Where is the truth? You can't quite see whether or not your faith is balanced. Do I know this to be true or do I simply want it to be true? And many Christians live in this sort of constant suspense. And it is a very dire place to be constantly. Constant state of suspense, never knowing quite sure, never quite believing without reservation. Many of us, all of us, are like the father in Mark chapter 9, 24, who admitted, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. But Lord, help my unbelief. Now, when this man said it, and this man was being very real, wasn't he? I believe, Jesus Christ. I believe in you. But in all honesty, there's a part of me that doesn't believe. Help that unbelief. He was speaking of what is true of any one of us at any particular moment. I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, to help you through that, let me give to you five brief, but five nonetheless, lessons about faith. And here's the first one. Five lessons about faith. The first one is this. God does not expect perfect faith. God does not expect perfect faith. In Matthew chapter 13, we see that even with little, bit, little faith, Little faith, we can accomplish great things. But our faith, whether small or great, will never be perfect. Because our faith is always tainted by our fears, by our experiences, by our skepticism. Our faith is always tainted by the natural man or by the sinfulness of man. So we end up saying... Lord, I believe, but in all honesty, there's an element in me that makes me very uncomfortable, but I don't believe. I question. You will never be able to give to God perfect faith. Therefore, God never expects perfect faith from you because you, like everyone else in this room, are a sinner. The question is, whether or not your belief outweighs your unbelief. And to what degree does your belief outweigh your unbelief? That's the question you need to ask yourself. 
Do I believe far more than I do not believe? Then you're headed in the right direction. But you will never be able to offer to God perfect faith. Here's lesson number two. Although God does not expect perfect faith, he does expect faith. He expects faith. He requires faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How do I know that? Well, the scriptures say exactly that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It reads this way. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then we're told why. Because it is impossible to approach God, to seek God, if you don't believe in God. So in order to make yourself available to God, in order to want to worship God, in order to come to God, you must believe that there is a God. And so it begins there. Faith. Faith means that I believe in Him. Faith means that I trust in Christ. But faith also means that I treasure Christ. If you believe in Him... If you trust in him, you will also treasure him. God does expect faith. It's the only means of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For through faith you have been saved. That eliminates a lot of other things, including good works. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been saved. And so God requires faith of you. Here's number three. Please understand this. When we speak of placing our faith in Jesus Christ, understand this. Our faith is not blind. We do not believe, we do not have blind faith. Uh, When we speak of placing our faith in Christ, we're not talking about a leap in the dark and hoping we fall in a safe place. Rather, our faith is anchored in real evidence. Now, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 speaks about the evidence of God. We have evidence of God in creation. We have evidence in God in our own conscience. Our own conscience tells us right from wrong and bears witness to the reality of God. But we have even a greater evidence in this right here. The word of God. This is God's self-revelation to us. And so our faith rests in the fact that we have been told that God exists. This book here provides a hook on which we hang our beliefs. The Word of God. Our life-giving beliefs. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scriptures is breathed out by God. In other words, inspired by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to you. All of it. Old Testament and New Testament. Profitable for you. Here's number four. Faith lesson number four. The faith of those who make themselves available to God will increase. Your faith will increase to the degree that you make yourself available to God. Many people struggle from day to day. How come I don't believe? I want to believe. I just don't. Well, ask yourself this question then. Are you making yourself available to God? And how? 
To what degree? Your faith will increase in proportion to how you make yourself available to God. Go where God directs you, and you will find him there. It's exactly what we see here in Matthew chapter 28, right? Jesus Christ said, this is where I'm going to be. Go there, and you will find me. And what happened? They found him. Do what God commands of you, and you will discover that he is there holding your hand. Live as God outlined, and you will discover that you are not alone. And as a result, your faith will increase. And when your faith increases, you will treasure him more, which means you will worship him more readily. Notice what happens here in Matthew chapter 28, since that's our chapter this morning. Let me point something out to you. Because these disciples, whether we're talking about 11 or 511, because they were available to Christ, notice what happens here. They were commissioned by Christ. In other words, they were used by God. He commissioned them to go out and do his bidding. He used them. And the world was changed because of it. Why? Because they made themselves available. Notice as well that because they were available to Christ, they received Christ's promise. He said, and I will be with you always. Why? Because they made themselves available to Christ. Christ said, they heard these words, I will be with you always. The psalmist writes in 2870, he says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Now those are the words of a person who made himself available to Christ and went where Christ would meet with him. Listen. You make yourself available to Christ, and I assure you that Christ will win over your loyalty. Here's the fifth and last lesson. One day, there will no longer be any need for faith. Your faith will be turned into sight. In God's presence, you will not have the need for faith any longer. You will be in the overwhelming tremendous, undeniable presence of God and faith will no longer be necessary. What you know to be true, what you knew to be true, will be your actual present reality. And this, the scriptures tell us, will be for eternity. For eternity. Prepare yourself for that day in which your faith will become sight. Sight.